Not far from where I used to live in Colorado lies a very gorgeous little mountain town called Pagosa Springs. I've been to Pagosa Springs a number of times. And as its name suggests, it's become a bit of a tourist destination because it's very well known for um, a multitude of natural hot springs that exist there. And so I've gone on multiple occasions to enjoy the hot springs and I've always thoroughly enjoyed my visit there. But I have to admit, the first time I was there, I was a little caught off guard by the spirituality on the town, specifically the ancient spirituality that surrounded the hot springs. Apparently, pagan spiritualists believe there to be a medicinal value to these hot springs, that by bathing in them, you can be healed of physical and emotional infirmities. Now, there actually is a a small kernel of truth to this. Um, Some scientific research does suggest that different hot springs um, are oftentimes rich with minerals that are quite good for our bodies. And so there is actually a slight health benefit to spending time in natural hot springs. Uh, But typically, generally speaking, the, the larger idea that you can go to these springs and be healed of your infirmities is largely just an overblown superstition. But what really surprised me in my studies this week is that this superstition is not just limited to American hippies, uh, but actually was present in Jerusalem in Jesus' own day. There was a natural pool that most scholars believe to be a hot spring uh, that existed on the northwest side of Jerusalem called Bethesda. And every now and then, the waters of this pool would get stirred. They would start to stir. They would, they would become disrupted. And the superstition was whoever the first person to enter the pool once the waters were stirred would receive healing. Uh, as a matter of fact, if, if you happen to be one of the few who read from like a King James or a New King James Bible, as we go through our text, you'll, you'll actually read some extra verses that are not in the ESV, which are sort of an explanation that apparently um, angels come down and stir these waters. And when the angels stir these waters, they give them a sort of medicinal, miraculous healing power. Uh, The best evidence that we have today suggests that those few verses um, were most likely uh, what we call a marginal note. Someone who was copying the book of John sort of gave an explanation in the margins and some copyists accidentally moved that into the text. So I don't believe that that's inspired scripture. Um, But it nonetheless is an ancient commentary that gives us a peek, a window into the mindset of many of the Jewish people surrounding these pools. This became a place for people with all different kinds of ailments and infirmities to seek healing. And one important time, one very lucky man went to this pool and he did find healing. But it wasn't in the water. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, thus saith the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? 
The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, others step down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Now that Jesus has already established at this point in the narrative throughout John that he is eager to heal people as a sign of his Messiahship, it should not surprise us that as he has gone up to Jerusalem for a feast day, we don't know which one specifically, that he would find himself at the pool of Bethesda. That's where the sick people are afterward. And so Jesus is there, and among all the different sick people who are there, we're told there's a crowd, there's a lot of people there, and Jesus finds one particular man to be the next recipient of his grace. Now, why did Jesus choose the man that he chose? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. One thing we can imply from the text is it was not because this man was, had some kind of great moral character that Jesus knew about. This was certainly not a reward for righteousness. And we know that through a multiplicity of implicit and explicit details. Uh, I would argue, although not every interpreter reads the text the same way I do, but I think that the text sort of implies that this was not a very grateful recipient of healing. This is a man who, after he was healed, didn't even take the time to find out who it was that just rescued him from 38 years of not having his legs. This was a man who, when he's questioned by the Pharisees, or, well, by the Jewish leaders, is very, very quick to blame Jesus. It's his fault. Go get him. And, but he doesn't even know who it is, and so later on when he finds him, Jesus comes up to him and greets him and is friendly with him, and the first thing he does is run off in tattletales. I don't think that this man is a very grateful recipient of his grace. But we also know explicitly, Jesus tells this man when he greets him, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Uh, That brings up a complicated issue we don't have time to get into today in detail. But I'll just say the Bible has an interesting relationship between sin and suffering. There are two extremes we need to uh, not fall into. The one extreme is to say your suffering, your sin, or forgive me, your suffering, your ailments are never, ever, ever uh, punishments for your sin. This, among other texts, is an explicit reason we know not to think that. Jesus is very clear that this man's paralysis was a result of his sin. And he says, you need to repent or else something worse than paralysis will come to you. And Jesus is alluding here to judgment day. So your ailments, your infirmities, they very much can be punishments for sin. We see in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that the 1 Corinthians, many in the church were getting sick and dying. And he tells it's because you're abusing the supper. 
God is punishing you for abusing the Lord's Supper. So sometimes your sicknesses and your sufferings are punishments. They're or really better word as chastisements. They're discipline. But we also know that, that we can't say every single one of my ailments and infirmities is a result of punishment because we have other verses that explicitly teach the contrary. The whole book of Job is about this. Right? Job's enemies, that was their main issue, is you must have done something wicked or else this calamity would not have come upon you. And Job has to spend the whole book defending his innocence. I didn't do anything wrong. And, and Jesus even tells us, Jesus is asked one day about a blind man. Why is this man blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. It was so that God could, be manif- could manifest his glory in healing him. So, is your current ailment, is your current sickness, is whatever it is that's, are you suffering, is it a result of your sin or is it just part of God's sovereign plan for your life? The answer is, I don't know. It could be one or the other and we don't want to fall to one extreme. But we know, for this man, we know what the case is. We know that this man was being disciplined, punished for his sin. So we know that Jesus did not heal this man because he was of great moral righteous character. But why he chose to heal him, the text just simply doesn't tell us. Apparently there were reasons sufficient for Jesus and for Jesus alone. But nonetheless, Jesus shows mercy to him and he heals him and he tells him to get up and walk, but that's not the only thing he commands him to do. The text goes out of its way to tell us this interesting detail. that It seems sufficient for us to know. We're on a need-to-know basis with the Gospels, right? Jesus did a lot of things. We're on a need-to-know basis. All we need to know is that Jesus says, get up and walk, and he walked. But the text goes out of its way to tell us that Jesus told him also, pick up your mat. Uh, or a bed. Your, your, your notes might say bed. Uh, this would have simply been like a long uh, bed, a very thin mat made of straw that could be rolled up and carried around. So especially if you're a homeless person, but other people would use them too. You could carry a bed with you and lay on it. And So Jesus not only tells this man to walk, but to pick up his bed. Uh, Some people have suggested that the reason the text included this little detail was to show us the full... the fullness of the recovery that Jesus brought to this man. In other words, you don't want to think of a man who's unable to walk, and then Jesus says, get up and walk, and now he's, he's like crippled, and he's really, really weak, but he can, he can still technically walk, right? No, this man, you, by looking at him, you would have no idea he was ever paralyzed. He has the fullness of strength. He's not only able to get up and walk, but he's able to carry his bed around with him. And so some people argue that this, was, this detail was thrown in to remind us that this was a complete and full empowerment to his, his body. Which, if that's the case, I mean, it certainly does at, at least distinguish Jesus from many of the faith-healing charlatans that run around in our culture today. Uh, there are a lot of Christians who run around the country claiming to be faith healers and that they can heal you of your sicknesses. But when you look at the actual things they do, it's usually what they're doing is nothing better than old carnival tricks. Things where they're making people who are already pretty healthy just feel a little bit better. Uh, you know, they touch your arm. Yeah, my shoulder's been sore. And then they touch, you make you hold your hand up forever and then the blood rushes through and then you go down. Yeah, yeah it feels better. That's not the case here. This was not a guy who was just like, yeah, my calves have been pretty sore lately. And then Jesus prayed in the power of Jesus' name. And now, oh yeah, they feel better. That's not the kind of healing we're talking about. This was a clear, obvious, supernatural work where a paralyzed man was given full and complete strength. Jesus is superior to the charlatans. But I don't really think that that's actually the reason that that Jesus tells this man to pick up his mat. 
we know that this becomes sort of the crucial issue of the text, that Jesus is not only working on the Sabbath, but he's commanding other people to break the Sabbath by walking around with their mat. And so I think if you wanted to say, why did John include these verses? I think Jesus was intentionally trying to break a false tradition about the Sabbath laws. Jesus wanted to come into contact. He is now ready to come into contact with his enemies. In other words, to be very, very clear, why did Jesus tell this man to pick up his mat? Because he's trying to pick a fight. He's trying to pick a fight, and he found it. Read verses 9 through 12 with me. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walked. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? The Jewish leaders confront this man for breaking the Sabbath. Now, how did he break the Sabbath? How is he doing this? Well, apparently, it's a violation of the Old Testament Sabbath laws to carry your mat from one place to another. This is written in Jewish traditions. You can read the Mishnah, which breaks down Sabbath-breaking laws into 39 different categories. And one of those last categories is that you can pick up your mat, but you can't carry it from one place to another on the Sabbath. And this man carried his mat from the pool all the way to the temple, so he is now breaking the Sabbath. That's too much labor, apparently. Too much work for the day where you're not supposed to be working. However, the man puts the blame onto Jesus. I'm just doing what the guy who healed me told me to do. Go, go get him. If you've got a problem with this, go get him. And it works. Right? They are very interested now. Now they realize we have bigger fish to fry. Here we've got just some random Jew breaking the Sabbath. But apparently we've got a man who's commanding people to break the Sabbath. And worse, healing people, which according to the Mishnah, is also a way to break the Sabbath. So Jesus is breaking the Sabbath by performing works of miracles on the day where you're not supposed to be working, you're supposed to be resting. So Jesus is breaking the Sabbath and he's commanding other people to break the Sabbath. And so now they realize we need to direct our attention to the big fish. This, we've got a bigger problem on our hands. Who is this Jesus guy? And so the implication of the text is that they find him and they confront him. And Jesus, from, a, from an outset, gives a very peculiar answer. Look at verses 16 through 17. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This very kind of bizarre and confusing answer, when you dive into it, is quite profound. Uh, Jesus had uh, a different road he could have gone with these Jewish leaders. He could have gotten into a very technical conversation about their abuse of the Sabbath. There is no doubt among almost any scholar today that's not an Orthodox Jew that the traditions that the Jewish leaders created around Sabbath laws were in no way, shape, or form consistent with what the Old Testament actually taught. Meaning that the, the, the Jewish leaders created an oppressive, tyrannical Sabbath system that was nearly impossible for anyone to actually obey and honor. So they have turned the gift of the Sabbath into a burden. 
And they have enforced upon people a bunch of extra-biblical, non-biblical laws that are not actually breaking the Sabbath. And so if Jesus wanted to, he could have defended himself by simply saying, I haven't broken the Sabbath. I've broken your understanding of the Sabbath, but according to the Old Testament, I have done nothing inconsistent with the Sabbath. But Jesus doesn't argue that way. He decides to defend his innocence, but he takes a much more interesting route. Rather than getting into a technical debate, haggling with lawyers about the law, he chooses a route which brings up a much more important issue, which is his own divinity. Jesus defends himself by appealing to his divine nature. In other words, this verse, verse 17, and really this entire passage, is all about proving that Jesus is God. If you're wondering, what is the sermon about today? That's it. Jesus is God. Up to this point, you and I, we already know that. Because John had a very clear, systematic explanation of that in chapter 1. You and I already know that, but what's so important about this text is this is the first time in the historical narrative that Jesus is being very crystal clear. John is no longer telling us as a theological aside that Jesus is divine. Jesus is now out of his own mouth telling his own enemies, I'm your God. We have people all around the world today who suggest that Jesus never claims to be God in the New Testament. Jesus never says he's God. Uh, Jesus' enemies didn't get that memo. They heard him loud and clear. Jesus, in verse 17, is making a very, to a Jewish reader at least, in his cultural context, is making a very crystal claim, uh, proof, or claim to divinity. And he does that in two ways. His enemies only focus on one, but it's important for us to focus on both of those. How does verse 17, how on earth is Jesus claiming to be God in verse 17? I don't see the word God in there. Well, Jesus is really doing so in two different ways. The first one, so if you're taking notes, it's kind of a two-point sermon. This is your first one. Jesus proves his divinity, point number one, because Jesus claims a divine prerogative. Jesus claims in this verse a divine prerogative, meaning Jesus is ultimately saying, I have the same rights and the same authority that God has. Which if is not true, is total blasphemy. Right? He's saying, I have the same rights and the same authority that God has. He is claiming a divine prerogative or a divine right. I want to take you back to a difficult question that up until Jesus' day, this was one of the favorite theological questions for Jewish theologians to debate about. And the question is this. Doesn't God break the Sabbath? Genesis tells us that God rested on the final day. And, and then he, God instructed the people, so as, as, as a pattern of that, you need to rest from all of your labor on, on the Sabbath. But every time a Saturday came around, does God stop working? No. God only rested from his particular work of creation, but God is very much at work every day of the week, every moment of existence, even on the Sabbath. If God were to stop working, creation would simply cease to be. Through his governance and his providence and power, God is constantly at work. He can't not work. It's his very nature to be working. 
And so through his providence and government, he is just as much at work on the Sabbath as he is on each and every day of the week. So is God a sinner? He breaks the Sabbath. Now, the different Jewish theologians came up with different ways to articulate this, so there wasn't one answer. But the general consensus was this. God has the authority to work on the Sabbath. That's the general consensus. That it's a man-made law for us, but God supersedes that. God is at liberty to work on the Sabbath. His laws are not necessarily our laws, right? So God can work on the Sabbath. And Jesus appeals to that fact. So that's what he's doing in verse 17. When he says, my father is working until now, he's saying, my father works on the Sabbath, and therefore so do I. And I am working too. He is claiming to literally be participating in his father's works. What the father is doing is what I am doing. You can't separate the father's works from my works. We perform the same works, the same activities, the same things. If God's allowed to work on the Sabbath, I'm allowed to work on the Sabbath because I am doing what God is doing. I am participating in the father's work. The father's work is my work. And so if that is the case, then Jesus quite literally cannot violate the Sabbath. For he is God, and God gets to work on the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is basically telling these Jewish leaders, whatever excuse you give to our Father for working on the Sabbath, I, I deserve that excuse too. Pass that excuse on to me. Because we share in essence, we share a unity. We are doing the same work. Whatever prerogatives, whatever excuse God gets, I get them too. My father is working until now and I am working. We are working together. I really love, there's a, a, a famous Anglican theologian named J.C. Ryle. I love the way he sums up Jesus' argument. He basically says in these few words, this is what Jesus is saying. My Father in heaven is continually working works of mercy and kindness in his providential government of the world, in supplying the needs of all his creatures, in maintaining the whole fabric of the earth in perfection, in giving rain from heaven in fruitful seasons, in preserving and sustaining life. All this he does on the Sabbath, as well as weekdays. Were he deceased from such works, the whole world would be full of confusion. When he rested from his works of creation, he did not rest from his works of providence. I also, who am his beloved son, claim the right to work works of mercy on the Sabbath. Any working such works, I do not break the Sabbath any more than my father does. My father appointed the fourth commandment to be honored and yet never ceased to cause the sun to rise and the grass to grow on the Sabbath. I also, who claim to be one with the father, honor the Sabbath, but I do not abstain from works of mercy upon it. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 17. He is claiming a right to work on the Sabbath, a right that only God has. And so this means he is essentially claiming to have the same power and the same authority as God himself. It's a claim to deity. But what's surprising to me is that there's an additional claim to deity in this text. It's very subtle, and for contemporary readers like us, we just skim right through it. You would never see it. But the Jews heard it loud and clear. And that is not only is Jesus claiming a divine prerogative, but point number two, Jesus claims a divine sonship. Read verse 17 with me again. But Jesus answered them, My father 
is working until now, and I am working. Jesus does not, in this, those, those few words, two words, my father. Jesus is not just claiming to be a son of God, the way all of us are, by faith through adoption. He's claiming to be a unique son. He's claiming to have a unique sonship, a relationship to the Father that nobody else has. God is his Father in such a unique way that Jesus can rightfully be said that he alone, he is the only begotten of the Father. There, God has no other sons but Jesus. That's what he's saying. And this sonship is so unique that it entitles Jesus to share a unity with God that he can claim for himself the Father's attributes and works. In other words, Jesus is simply telling the Jewish leaders what John already told us in John 1.18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has a divine glory because he is God's only son. That's what Jesus is saying in those two words, my father. What Jesus is really hinting at is a doctrine that we later theologians have referred to as the eternal generation of the son. We've talked about this a few times in church, but it's very complicated, so it's good to refresh our memories. It's a very, very important aspect of the Trinity, one that's largely been lost in 21st century American Christianity. Jesus is teaching us here about the eternal generation of the Son. And a very famous Baptist theologian, John Gill, said about this doctrine, all the sound and orthodox writers have unanimously declared for the eternal generation and sonship of Christ in all ages. And I agree with him. What I'm talking about today is not my speculation, it's not my musings, it's not just something I read in a commentary. This is the unanimous understanding of Jesus Christ since at least Nicaea, I would say before that. For 1,500 years, the Christian church has unanimously confessed that Jesus is the eternally generated Son of God. And so what is this doctrine of eternal generation? Let's just, like I said, briefly refresh our memory. Eternal generation is the doctrine that the second person of the Trinity is called Son because he is from the first person's essence, which is why the first person is called Father. The Father is the Father because he does what fathers do. He begets, he generates, he has offspring. The second person of the Trinity is the Son because he is God's offspring. He actually comes from God. His existence, his essence comes from the Father's essence. Now, this really needs to be clarified lest we slip into some very grievous, and by grievous I mean damning, errors. First, this is simply an analogy the Bible gives us. In the same way that a father births, well, as it doesn't do the birthing process, but generates and creates a son, God the Father has generated or begotten his son. But it's an analogy, and no analogy is meant to be one-to-one -one correlation in every respect. There are ways that human generation are crucially different from divine generation. One of those ways is that unlike biological children, the beginning of the son in God is in eternal existence. It didn't happen in time. I begat Matthew, but that means that there was a point in time when Matthew didn't exist. 
And then from my essence, I brought Matthew forward. But there was never a time when the second person of the Trinity didn't exist. It was not like there was the Father, and then he begat the Son and created him, and now he has a Son. The Son of God has eternally existed in a generated state, which is why we call it the eternal generation. It was so funny. One time I briefly, I was, I was at lunch with, with Dick and his son, and I briefly mentioned this to him. And, and you can tell how sharp your son is because I, I just threw out the word there. I didn't have time to elaborate. I just talked about eternal generation. And he stops and he goes, isn't that a contradiction of terms? To be born, to be generated, to be begotten is to come into existence. So how can you be eternally come into existence? That's a, and I said, that is so bright. That's, what you're, that's the tension you're supposed to feel. That yes, the Son is from the Father, but He's always been that way. There was not a process when it happened. He is eternally begotten. So when we say that Jesus is the only begotten Son of the Father, we do not mean what the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are modern-day Arians, mean, which is that at one point in time, God created the Son. That's how they understand begottenness, and it's a heresy. Christ is eternal, so he is eternally from the Father. Additionally, another difference. In human begetting, only some of the Father is passed on. Right? Like, I'm really blessed. My, my son looks a lot like me, but we're not identical. Right? He, he, he's got his mom in him too, both in appearance and personality. He's not a, a, a direct replica of my essence. There's just a general resemblance. In divine begottenness and divine generation, there is a full essence communicated. It's not a general likeness. It is the exact same essence communicated to a second person in the Trinity. So Jesus and his father have the exact same nature. The father has communicated to the second person the fullness of divinity. It is a spiritual, metaphysical analogy begottenness of the Father communicating in fullness his essence to a second person. So that we don't say Christ is merely kind of like the Father. He resembles God more than anybody else. They have the exact same nature. Which, by the way, is what the book of Hebrews teaches us. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you were to, metaphorically speaking, put the second person of the Trinity under a microscope, put the first person of the Trinity under a microscope, you would see the same thing. They share the same essence. The only difference between them is that one is begetter and other is begotten. But their essence is exactly the same. This is why this was one of the texts we refute the Arians with. The Arians say Jesus came into time. He was created in time. That means he's not eternal. The Father's nature is eternal. The Father has always been here. Jesus has not. So do they share an exact nature? No. Jesus has a created nature. The Father has an eternal nature. So they have different natures. But what does Hebrews say? The exact same nature. If the Father is eternal, the Son is eternal. If the Father is all-powerful, the Son is all-powerful. If the Father is all-knowing, the Son is all-knowing. They share the exact same nature, which is why we cannot call the Son created. He is just as eternal as His Father because the Father has eternally been communicating the exact same essence. Now, I understand that you probably are not super thrilled to have this taught. Like, this is a very complicated thing. I have to learn this now. But I want to assure you that this is vitally important. 
The reason the Council of Nicaea, which we affirm at this church, the reason the Athanasian Creed, which we affirm at this church, teaches the eternal begottenness of the Son is because it is this doctrine and this doctrine alone that safeguards the two most important things we know about the Son of God. And we know two things about him. We know that in some sense, in some way, shape, or form, he is distinct from the Father. There has to be some kind of distinction between the Father and the Son. Otherwise, what does it even mean to have a Father and a Son? There is an ancient heresy known as Sabellianism, which has reincarnated today in the form of what's called modalism. And modalism collapses the Trinity into one person. There's, there's not three persons. There's one person, but he plays these different roles. And when he's playing those different roles, we call him by a different name. So sometimes he's playing the role of the Father. Sometimes he's playing the role of the Son. Sometimes he's playing the role of the Spirit. But there's only one person here. It's kind of like Jesse is both a coach and a father and a teacher. And sometimes he's in teacher mode. And sometimes he's in father mode. Sometimes he's in coach mode. So there's different names and different activities. But he's just one person. And that's what they say about the Godhead. So what they do is they collapse the persons so that there is no distinction whatsoever. And so we have to ask the question, what does it mean for a person to be the son of himself? If Jesus is both the son and the father, Jesus begot himself? Who is the son of God praying to in the Garden of Gethsemane? Obviously, you read through your Bible, there's a clear distinction between the father and the son. We don't want to collapse it like the Sibelians, like the modalists do. Eternal generation keeps them distinct. There is a distinction. One person was begotten from the other. They're not the same person. But there's another error that we also know about the Son, which is what we just got done talking about, which is that he is completely and fully divine. Paul says, in him the fullness of divinity dwells. He's not a demigod. He's not a partial God. But as Hebrews says, he is the exact same essence as his Father. He is completely and fully God. So they're distinct but another way, they have the exact same nature. They're the exact same. And eternal generation preserves that at the same time. So even though there's a distinction where one person has generated the other, in another sense, they are exactly the same. Because the fullness of the essence was communicated so that they have the exact same essence. So eternal generation allows us to believe both things. Jesus is distinct from the Father in his personhood. But in his nature, they are both the one and true God. They share the same divine essence. One is not more your God than the other one is. How can he be? They're exactly the same. But they're not. John 1 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and was God. Distinction, they're with each other. Harmony, they are. They're both God. Eternal generation is why we're able to believe in these two things. It's very, very important. Now, here's how a lot of American Christians respond to everything I've just said. That sounds like a lot of philosophical speculation and not a lot of Bible. What text am I technically preaching from? I just taught you for longer than I should have. Over 15 minutes about eternal generation. Where did I get it from? I didn't get it from a passage. I got it not even from a verse. I got it from two words in one verse. My Father. That's where I got it from. So you're probably thinking, you are just pulling this out of thin air. 
Now, there's lots of reasons why I don't think that's the case. But for time's sake and for our text's sake, let me just tell you. You can think everything I said was just a bunch of philosophical speculation. But here's what's interesting. Jesus' enemies interpret him just as I did. Jesus' enemies understand he is making a grand, philosophical, metaphysical claim about his nature. So you can say when Jesus calls God his father, he's not, he's, he's just saying like you and me say it. That's not how his enemies interpret him. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The second they heard the words, my father, not our father, my father, they said he's claiming to be God here. He's claiming equality with God when he says God is my father. How is that the case? Right? Because from a human perspective, fathers are greater than their sons. That's why the Ten Commandments say, children, honor your father. It doesn't say, father, treat your children like equals because you're not equals. <laughs> so how, how, how insane are these Jewish leaders where Jesus says, God is my father, and they go, oh, you're claiming to be equal with him. Isn't that a claim of subordination, of being lesser? From our perspective, it is. Clearly, the Jews understand my father in a very similar way that I'm teaching you. They understand that when Jesus is saying, I come from the father, so much so that his works are my works. We share an essence. We share a work. They understand that metaphysically. They understand he is claiming to be the son of God in such a sense that God has given him his nature so that he is now equal to God. When they heard God is my father, they heard I am equal to God in every way. So I don't care if 21st century Americans don't read it that way. That's how his enemies interpret it and that's who he was talking to. Jesus' sonship is a claim to be God. And isn't it embarrassing that even his enemies understood something that the Arians can't figure out? Even his enemies understood something that the Sibelians and the modalists can't figure out. That the claim to be God's only begotten son is a claim to be fully divine. And so, here's the thing. I understand this can be very confusing. Jesus is going to elaborate a little bit on it more next week, but I can't promise it's going to necessarily make things crystal clear. It's a difficult doctrine. So if you're looking for something just really sufficiently clear, like, okay, thanks for telling me all that, but what do I take away from all of that? It's very clear. It's sufficient for us this week to simply affirm together as a church that Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is God. And that means that we owe to him whatever we owe to God. If you give God a pass on the Sabbath laws then you need to give the Son a pass on the Sabbath laws. If you owe God your faith and your obedience, then you owe the Son your faith and your obedience. And this is why we implore all men to do this. This is why our message at Redeemer Christian Fellowship to each and every person who walks through these doors each and every Sunday is to run to Christ in faith, believe in Him, affirm His gospel, cherish His word, obey His word. And why do we employ others to do this? Why do we do things, things ourselves? It's simple. Because He is our God. He is God the Son. 